Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Ben. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. Happy Betwixtmas. Today we're going to be looking into our crystal ball and seeing what the year ahead in British politics has in store. Hello, I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor at the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Rachel Cunliffe, our associate political editor. And joining us down the line, I have Ben Walker, our senior data journalist at the New Statesman. 2024 is set to be the biggest election year in history. So we're going to concentrate a bit on the elections that are coming up. Um, Countries with more than 4 billion people will be sending their citizens to the polls. So a lot of people are going to be voting next year. And whether or not the UK government decides to hold a general election before January 2025, it's still going to be an incredibly busy year for elections and also for journalists. Um, So why don't we try and do this chronologically? Obviously, we don't know when the general election is going to be yet, so we'll save that one. But let's start with the locals. Um, Ben, you spend an awful lot of time poring over your maps of wards. What do the local elections next year bring for us? Are there any particular type of seat or type of place that they might concentrate on? Yeah, yeah. next year is the 2024 local elections and mayoral and no assembly. Oh, you got the London Assembly. you have about, what, 3,000, 4,000 seats, up a lot of council elections. The last time they were held was 2021. And that was, if we if we hark back to that, that was the vaccine bounce. And what happened in 2021, just to, to remember, it was a whitewash. It was it was a complete, complete landslide for, for the Tories in many new places. They were breaking ground in a lot of the, the types of seats they won uh, very well, very handsomely in, in the 2019 general. So what we had uh, in these council seats and a lot of these uh, areas that were up, that are going to be up next year, was a repeat of the general election. So what we're going to be going from is a repeat of the general election in 2021 to what looks to be a Labour landslide with something between 370 to 400 and something seats. And that's what we're going to see hopefully or likely reflected in these council elections up. You also have mayoral elections. Sadiq Khan's uh, head is on the line with, with, with that. I mean, a few months ago, about half a year ago, you had one poll showing him just a few percentage points ahead. Um, you know, that seems to be more discontent with him. 
him. And there is a lot of discontent for Khan in, in Khan in London. He's he's not exactly the most popular mayor going. Um, and then you have also a ton of um, northern mayors. Great Andy Burnham is going for his third run in Greater Manchester. And then you have um, in, in Cleveland as well, which the Tories did sweep by Cleveland. I, of course, mean Middlesbrough and Redcar. And, and basically the parts of what used to be Yorkshire is, is now something else, um, which which hurts this this Yorkshireman here. But yeah, these are these are areas that went Tory in 2021, went Tory in 2019, but Labour were relying on, you know, to give them a comfortable majority in, you know, 2005, 97, that sort of stuff. So really, um, if you want to call it a sort of a red wall locals, that that is it. You're going to have a lot of these places that are very urban, very built up, red brick. Uh, it's going to be very interesting in that regard. You also have Bristol going up to the polls, you know, let's, let's really test the mood there. The Greens are really giving Bristol... West, which is now going to be Bristol Central, uh, a lot of effort. Let's see if they keep up the momentum there. If they can, might be trouble for Thangham Debonair or, you know, might just be a case of split voting. They like a Green Councillor, but they want a Labour MP. We'll start to see the signs of that. It's going to be, yeah, a lot of urban elections um, because in 2021, we had a lot of county elections. But local government um, for, for, for the nerd, for the nerds here, um, it, it's it's going through a lot of reform. A lot of counties are kind of becoming unitary authorities. So back in the day, uh, you used to have a county council and a district council. Now it's just going to be one. Particularly in the case of mine, uh, my my former home county, North Yorkshire, and a hell, hell of a lot more others. And what that means is there's going to be fewer elections next year than there were in 2021, and a lot of that is countryside uh, counties as well. So. A hell of a lot, a very urban set of local elections in England. A um, lot of challenges for the Tories who were defending a, you know, a ton of the seats they won off the backs of the vaccine bounce, the general election landslide. Uh, it's going to be likely poor for them. Thank you, Ben. That was so useful. And it's amazing, isn't it, Rachel, how different the context of those local elections will be even from two years ago. I mean, hearing that phrase vaccine bounce. It just feels like a phrase from a different era. <laughs> yeah, it feels very strange. And uh, we've also just had the anniversary, the four-year anniversary of the 2019 general election. Mm. And a quick look back at how much has changed in the four years since that election. And then obviously the, the three years since that set of local elections in 2021. Things have moved astonishingly fast. We were talking about another decade of Conservative rule, Boris Johnson being Prime Minister for two terms, mm. eight years. Uh, we were talking then about how the Conservatives had completely redrawn the electoral map and a lot of the areas that Ben just mentioned, sort of red wall areas, were ones that it was considered uh, first in 2019 and then when we had those locals in 2021, mm. that was going to be a permanent shift away from Labour towards the Conservatives. And it's really strange to think about just how, how radically everything has changed. We've had two prime ministers since Boris Johnson and the recovery that Keir Starmer has led is, is really quite astonishing. And things like the vaccine bounce and the Conservatives management of the country under COVID either aren't really factors because there are much more important things now, namely the cost of living crisis and public services in the NHS. Or if COVID does come up as an electoral issue, it's damaging for the Conservatives because it's party gate, uh, it's Boris Johnson, it's mismanagement and in so much as people have been following it, it's, it's what's come out during the COVID inquiry about the chaos in Downing Street. So that thing that was beneficial for the Conservatives, vaccine bounce. It's soured. It has really soured and, and got quite 
toxic for them. Mm. And let's look at some of those others that Ben mentioned in greater depth. Um, We'll come on to London, but yes, we're going to have these mayoral elections. We're also electing some new mayors, aren't we, Ben, in the East Midlands, North East and North Yorkshire areas, which I think will be an interesting opportunity for Labour. Um, They won that Tamworth by-election in the West Midlands. Could they prove that in the East Midlands they're that they, they still have some some hold there because the Midlands is the sort of unspoken about place that has been trending Tory since the Second World War, really. Mm, yeah, and uh, I always used to call it this sort of this Midlands corridor. So uh, if you think of the geography, get to the right middle of England and you have Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire, right? And right between it, you have places like Bolsover, Ashfield, Mansfield, Chesterfield, Retford, all of these places, you know, Labour really had them in the palm of their hand for many, many decades. And there was there was very little doubt that they were ever going to lose them. And then they lost them quite quite handily to the Conservatives in, in, in damning measure. You know, or hark back, of course, uh, as Rachel says, four years ago, the general election. Dennis Skinner losing Bolso. He didn't even attend the count mm. because he knew he'd lost. It was, it was a real different days and um what's happened is you know we're going to see a big swing back a very you know significant swing back. But, but but what we're seeing is though it will be a swing back to labor and it will look like likely comfortable labor wins don't write them off therefore as labor till death do as part what you've created what boris johnson what brexit what ukip what nigel farage have created in these sort of like heartland midland areas is a new kind of swing voter people countenancing the idea that oh i I can vote for someone else, and it, it's a lot, lot more, lot more attractive in terms of mayoral elections in the Midlands. You've got yeah, Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire sort of coming together to make this very odd mayoralty. And I, I, yeah, as a personal opinion, you know, just putting mayors in certain places doesn't make much sense because in my my, my uh, hometown, I'm from Harrogate, we've been formed part of uh, North Yorkshire, or rather North Yorkshire and York combined authority. Why do you need to do that? That's just a waste of waste of words, isn't it? Uh, it should just be North Yorkshire. But why would we give that a mayor? I don't really think that makes much sense. You need a different kind of devolution deal. But yeah, when that does happen, I wouldn't say Labour should be any confident about North Yorkshire because where they have strength is in York, Scarborough, uh, a bit of Whitby, and yes, now Selby, but everywhere else, they're absolutely nowhere. Um, you have, of course, Craven, Richmondshire, which is Rishi Sunak's seat, uh, North Allerton, uh, Catterick, the Catterick Garrison, which has got a lot of army, army families there who don't really, uh, haven't really been looking at Labour for God knows how ever, really. Um, but yeah, there's not really much hope for Labour in North Yorkshire outside of Scarborough, Whitby, York, and of course, Selby, if indeed they hold it. But um, yeah, in, in the mayoral, mayoral terms, whenever that gets agreed, by the way, because we're still in the process of agreeing it, um, yeah, I don't think don't think Labour has hope there. But in the Midlands, absolutely. In the West Midlands with Andy Street, um, well, he's a very popular guy. This is the thing. He's really overperforming his party brand there. And this, this is the power of personality. And this is what mayoral elections do. He should probably hold on, probably, probably. But the national swing could ruin it. And how he won so well how he beat the sort of Birmingham Labour vote was by winning in the black country, which is Dudley, which is Walsall, uh, which is uh, Wolverhampton and and uh, Sandwell, right? Brett West Bromwich, basically. And he got that sort of UKIP vote out there. And what's happening right now across the country is the UKIP vote or former UKIP vote or, you know, leave vote turned Boris turned whoever. Um, they're, they're most, a lot of them are staying at home. About a good, you know, a, a good share of them have gone to Labour, but a lot of it is apathy. A lot of it is staying at home. This is why I always have this view 
you is that when we come to the next general election, if you want to, you know, try and measure turnout, you might see it go up in very, you know, quite relatively middle class areas like around London as they reject the Tories in, you know, sort of a great deal of justifiable anger. But I, I take the view that in places like the Black Country and North Lancashire, in your Burnleys and, and places like that, you could see turnout fall because though Labour will pick up Leave voters, a lot of them will be sort of losing faith with politics altogether. But again, just to, though they lose faith, that doesn't mean they've lost faith forever. Some of them will come back. So Tories will be looking closely at turnout, I suppose, in some of those elections. Um Rachel, what what do you think of um, how the London mayoral election is shaping up? You've interviewed uh, Sadiq Khan's key opponent. Susan Hall, yes. Yeah, the Conservative candidate. Mm -hmm. And actually, when you did the interview, it was at a time when a poll, and yes, it's just one poll, I am aware, Ben is here, <laughs> came out that suggested that she was actually you know, in with a chance of beating Khan. Actually, it wasn't just one poll. There was one poll that put her on one point behind, but there'd been one a week before that put her on two behind, right. and one a week before that put her on three points behind. So it was at a time when she seemed to be on an upward trajectory. We've had a couple of polls come out since, more than a couple, that yeah. show the opposite and show Sadiq Khan having a quite a large lead. And also there have been various comments that she has made which haven't particularly helped her. Uh, one of them being that her Oyster card got stolen on the tube when it was in fact handed back to her by a fellow passenger who said, oh, I think you've dropped this. Um, but that's one side. What I think is interesting about the London mayoral election this time around is that we're back to first past the post. Yeah. So we are back to the person with the most votes wins and you don't get a second preference. And the general consensus has been that this makes it harder for Sadiq Khan because London has a strong Liberal Democrat vote, it has a strong Green vote. And uh, in the past, on second preferences, it was very obvious that it was going to go to Sadiq Khan for Labour. Now I think the Conservative argument was if we get a popular candidate, the left-wing vote could be split and our candidate could rise up and triumph. There's also splits on the right of the vote, though. Uh, so Reform is running a candidate in, in London, Howard Cox. Reform is uh, Nigel Farage's party. I interviewed Richard Tice, who's the, the current leader of that. I say current leader of that. It could be that Nigel Farage has taken it over by the time this podcast goes out. Um, and Reform, generally, it, it looks like the level they seem to be polling at doesn't always play out in actual results. They didn't do very well in the last year's local election. But they've got a real campaign on at the moment, which is to challenge the Conservatives from the right. So they're going to go hard on London on a lot of the things that the Conservatives want to go hard on London. So namely, ULEZ repealing Sadiq Khan's expansion, uh, reform, want to scrap it all together, um, really going hard on this idea that London in London there was a war on the motorist, mm. um, challenging Sadiq Khan's record on, on crime, like a very similar space to the space that Susan Hall is inhabiting. And when she was uh, selected as the candidate, which uh, happened in, in quite a chaotic way. They whittled it down to a shortlist of three and then the front runner in that shortlist dropped out and it was just between two and, and she got it. Um, I remember we discussed she is a candidate on the right and the Tories haven't run a right-wing candidate yeah. in London before. Boris Johnson went for the centre and Zach Goldsmith is sort of a centrist, moderate kind of Tory. Um, so could that be a successful strategy for them? Uh, what we're seeing now is that reform are challenging them on the right-hand side as well. So that's kind of really interesting how the changing in voting 
system going back to first past the post might not play out in quite the way that the Conservatives possibly hoped when they... I'm being very cynical, aren't I? Suggesting that they <laughs> well, change the voting Jacob system. Jacob did admit that when you try gerrymandering, sometimes it comes back to bite you yes. uh, with the voter ID. And of course, there will be voter ID necessary in all of these elections as well, which is another dimension of them. Um, but Ben, one thing that the Conservatives took from holding Uxbridge and South Ryslip in a by-election um, earlier this year was um, this idea that they could potentially run London elections as a referendum on ULES, which is a policy that isn't particularly popular in outer London boroughs because they've been taken into the expanded area of the scheme. But, you know, actually, when you look at the overall polling, it's not that black and white on how unpopular it is. Do you think they're trying to shape up a campaign to do that for the whole London elections, London Assembly, London Mayoralty, and how, you know, how, how, to what extent can they possibly sort of be successful in that? Mm. If, you, if, you, if you make it a referendum on ULES, uh, don't think it'll work for the Tories' benefit. I think if you made it, made it a referendum Sadiq Khan, though, and added ULES into the equation, I think it might actually go. It, I, I, was, I was writing this down as you were speaking, which is that, you know, if this was an election on Sadiq Khan, it would be trouble for Labour. He's not a particularly popular guy. In terms of his favourables, they're much lower than the favourables for the Labour brand. His own favourables are, as, as a consequence, doubly high as well. But if you make it an election on the Labour Party, on the Labour, you know, the Labour brand, the Labour government, then of course you're probably going to win it pretty handily. And as you say as well, first past the post could come to bite uh, the progressive parties in the butt because... Um, uh, just to make a general point about the nation as a whole, um, Starmer leads Sunak pretty well. You know, he's, he's he's quite well liked, increasingly so, surprisingly so. But you've got about a quarter to a third of the Labour base who just aren't that fussed by him. And you are mm. seeing some seepage in certain areas to other parties. It's not significant yet. It will be significant once Labour gets into government. The, the coalition that, that Labour is building to get into government, like the coalition Joe Biden built to beat Donald Trump, is, well, will likely crumble a little bit uh, come, 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 come what may. And um, what we could see in London is that favourability for, for Starmer's Labour, you know, my, it, it's okay, it's better than any other party, it's beating every other party, but you could see some seepage to keep that green vote high in a first-past-the-post election, to keep that Lib Dem vote high enough to, to stymie Labour's opportunities there. But to get back to your question, ULES, um, uh, in, in outer London, the new boroughs that saw it, yes, there was mixed opinion a lot. I think there was plurality opposition and then another poll showed uh, plurality in favour and then another poll showed pretty pretty split, pretty neck and neck, which, um, by the way, is a complete opposite of what we're seeing in Wales with the introduction of the 20 mile per hour speed limit, which got 70% opposition a few months back, now has 78% opposition today. And uh, Mark Drakeford, who, though he's stepping down as first minister soon, is seeing his own personal uh, reputation collapse and um, it might damage Welsh Labour in, in the future. Something about that later uh, in 2026 when we get the Assembly Parliament Senate elections there. But yes, ULES... <laughs> we can do that in our look ahead to 2026 we, yeah, then. Yes, we could. <laughs> we are, yeah. um, in terms of ULES... Yeah, save, save your material till then. Yeah. If, for ULES, if the Tories make it a referendum, that won't be work. There's not enough people bothered by that to push them over the line. If you make it a referendum on Sadiq Khan, if you sort of make it less about, uh, if you make it, if Susan Hall can somehow rebrand herself and appear somewhat more <laughs> attractive to voters, I think, um, uh, you know, she. I don't know if she would have a chance, but it might narrow the numbers slightly. If you make it a referendum on Sadiq Khan, it could be troublesome or more troublesome than it already is. I doubt it, but it would narrow the pool slightly. And something we need to bear in mind as well is that, of course, London is incredibly diverse. Half the population is white. You've got to remember or know that um, 
a lot of a lot of minority ethnic voters are just becoming increasingly diverse with their voting choice, particularly among Hindu communities in Harrow and North London and such like. And we just we take this quite bad attitude, which I think was justified maybe twenty years ago, that all all ethnic voters go one way, you know, but they're not anymore. They're actually becoming quite diverse, not least in certain Muslim communities in the north of England as well. And so I think um, you have settled minority brown or Hindu voters um, sort of being more attracted to the conservative brand or being more naturally inclined to vote that way. And I think um, it's only going in that direction. It's not we're not going to see a reverse of that for, for quite a while, I think. And um, it might make, uh, I don't know, I think the assumptions we have about certain ethnic minorities voting in certain ways when it comes to polling, you know, we might be we might be doing something wrong there, something for the pollsters to have a think about. Yeah, well, I do remember Labour lost Harrow Council in, in a set of London elections where they pretty much won everywhere else, you know, yeah. winning all of these places like Barnet and stuff. And that part of the, um, the well, one of the factors there was the fact that um, Gujarati Hindu voters were, were turning to the Conservatives as they have been for quite a while. And I think, you know, Zach Goldsmith in his sort of infamous mayoral campaign tried to exploit some of those sort of community prejudices, um, particularly in terms of how he presented Sadiq Khan and his the fact that he's a Muslim of Pakistani origin in his literature. There's there's a lot of MPs and local politicians who try and use those divisions in bits of London, aren't there? Um, Harrow East is, is just is one of the examples on a constituency level. And Susan Hall actually tried to do it about London's Jewish community. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, at Conservative Party conference, she said that the Jewish community don't feel safe with Sadiq Khan. And actually, Sadiq Khan has uh, worked very closely with the Jewish community and during the Corbyn era where Labour's relations with the Jewish community weren't the best. Sadiq Khan was quite popular. Uh, and so that was quite an odd comment for her to make, but to try and bring up a division that didn't really exist, but you could sort of see what she was trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And just one last point on 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 Khan. I think one of his um, challenges will be that the Labour Party are going to find it difficult to defend him or sort of sort of full-throatedly campaign for him. They don't like him. A lot of them they hung like him out him. to dry over you, Les, and there yeah. was a little bit of tension between those two offices. And I think it's very difficult when Starmer or Rayner is doing a broadcast interview, say, you know, a few weeks ahead of the um, the, the London election to, to, to answer those questions because they don't on a national level agree, or at least they don't want to look like they're supporting the 20 mile per hour um, speed limit in Wales or ULES in London. So that, I think, will be quite tricky for them. Um, and then also you've got this other, I mean, to go back to your point, Ben, about the voting patterns of, of ethnic minorities in London, you've got the Indian election at the same time, basically, as, as these elections would happen. Um, and we know, actually, that, you know, misinformation coming out of India can sometimes sort of play havoc in WhatsApp groups and other fora, or in UK contexts, sometimes in elections. Yeah, absolutely. In in terms of that, and um, just to just to make a point, an Indian election turnout is pretty. It's it's all right. It's pretty good, and so you will have an Indian. Uh, is the word diaspora? It's a diaspora, isn't it? In, in the when yeah. when you live, uh, we're not going to call them expats like we call them only Brits expats, aren't we? We're gonna we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna use other words. Um, you do have a you will have a lot of engagement from that, and and WhatsApp groups. You know, um, think WhatsApp groups are the new community centres. 
They're the new community leaders. And when you have really tight-knit communities, which are often first or second generation settled migrants, um, you do have those votes when they are eligible to vote, swinging almost uniform. In the Batley and Spen by-election, for instance, which Labour almost lost by a, by a few hundred votes. And, you know, had Labour lost, I dare say the uh, Sir Keir Starmer would not be Labour leader today. Um, you had a lot of that support hinging on how community groups via WhatsApp groups would vote. And Labour sort of um, tried to capitalise on that with literature going hard on the then Prime Minister, yeah. heaven forbid, well, shaking hands with the Indian Prime Minister, Mr Modi, and uh, then trying to f- f- ferment a strong opinion about Kashmir, which a, a lot a lot, lot of Muslims in Britain do have a strong opinion on. It's, um, yeah, it, it, you are seeing that. And um, you, you're beginning to see it in other cities as well, Leicester and Nottingham and... Um, uh, you used to exist a bit more strongly in in Birmingham when the Labour vote wasn't quite as united. The Lib Dems tried to prey on it, and then you had the Respect Party with Salma Yacoub try and uh, prey on it as well. But um, things are different now. But I don't know, actually. Here's a question: How different are they really? Uh, particularly with Gaza and Hamas, yeah. and Palestine. It, it, exactly. That that adds an extra complication yeah. to it. And what could be happening at the same time as all of these elections um, is the general election, um, Freddie. Haywood, our esteemed colleague, has just filed a piece saying Labour think that it, or at least some Labour insiders think that it might be in May. So they've set this policy deadline for February. And actually, on top of Freddie's reporting, I've heard that um, Labour want to uh, establish the framing of their election campaign and sort of the story that they tell by March. Um, so that also suggests that they're looking to spring. Um, but then I do know that they have a plan for literally any scenario for, for <laughs> yeah. election timing. Rachel, are you hearing anything on election Well, timing? I think that's exactly the point. There is a difference between preparing for a May election, being ready for yes, a May exactly. election... And thinking and, it will be And then. expecting a May yeah. election. I think it would be sort of disastrously foolish of Labour or indeed any party to not have a plan for a May election because we've had lots of signs that it's something that Rishi Sunak is considering. Um, the uh, tax changes in the autumn statement that I know we discussed, they come in in January. Why would you bring them in in January rather than at the start of the new tax year in April unless you wanted the impact of that to be felt in time for a May election? You've also got the fact that the Small boat crossings are a massive, massive existential crisis for Rishi Sunak. They get worse or they get more, that gets more intense over the summer. So would you allow another summer of hundreds of people crossing the channel uh, and to have months of coverage, weeks of coverage dominated by that story before an election? Or would you go first? Uh, Similarly with the Rwanda bill, if it gets held up in the House of Lords are frustrated in the courts. Would you go to the country and say, this is a Rwanda election, it's an immigration election, it's an ECHR election, it's a stop the unelected judges or the so unelected get, House of Lords. get stop the boats done. Get stop the boats done. Mm. Uh, and all of that points towards May. Noting all of that and putting all <laughs> of that in the May column, I just feel, uh, <laughs> I've got, I've got got no evidence for this but I just feel autumn is more likely just simply because the polls are really clear at the moment and they're really clear regardless of what Rishi Sunak tries to do resetting on the left or the right bringing back David Cameron sacking Suella Braverman axing HS2 reversing some net zero measures trying to focus on Rwanda like none of it is actually helping him and if you were a prime minister, why would you go into an election that you're pretty certain you're going to lose unless you absolutely have to? So if there is a, a mutiny of sort of Tory mm. MPs, it might be a 
well, you know, I, I'm going to hold an election just to show you. But really, he doesn't have to call one until, well, the latest is, is, is January 2025. Nobody wants that. So I think uh, I think autumn is more likely because, I mean, does, here's the question, right? Does Rishi Sunak strike you as the kind of person who goes, right, I'm going to take a risk and maybe it'll pay off and maybe it won't, but, you know, throwing the dice and seeing what happens. He just doesn't strike me as that kind of prime minister. <laughs> I have heard from one MP that he likes he likes the element of surprise. So apparently with this David Cameron um, appointment, which wasn't leaked um, and was a complete surprise to even the most experienced lobby journalist that I've spoken to, um, he really enjoyed the fact that that took people by surprise and kind of, you know, completely stole the, the news agenda that day. And, and apparently sort of just calling a May election might be another example of that. But I agree more in your camp, um, Rachel, that I don't think that they would call it in May. I think we need to to remember that um, saying that there's going to be an election sooner than there might be is a party management tactic as well as everything else. It's mm. like it's almost like threatening a reshuffle for Labour and for the Tories. So Labour like to put it around that they think that it's going to be in spring, maybe to say, you know, so don't make any more impossible sort of spending requests from us because we're not going to give you anything else. We're finalising the manifesto. Don't, you know, rebel too much or, you know, start well, and also start playing up over certain issues that are like, you know, that are really dividing the party at the moment, like the Gaza ceasefire, because we're going to be in power soon. And then on the Conservative side, it's, it's more of a, you know, we've got to do the best that we can to shore up what we have and uh, we don't want to completely be obliterated in, in a general. So I do think there's 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 an element of cynicism to the May uh, discourse, but it could happen. Well, and also for Labour, it's in their interest to suggest that it could be in May, not just for internal party management, although definitely for that, but also because if Labour start putting about, oh yeah, we're planning for May, we're hearing it's going to be in May, and then it doesn't happen in May, that makes Rishi Sunak look dithering, look mm. desperate. Remember the Gordon Brown He's election that didn't happen. He's yeah. hiding from the public. He's scared. Uh, and that helps their narrative if it doesn't happen. They have nothing to lose by saying, we think it's going to be in May, and then it doesn't. Whereas Rishi Sunak does have something to lose by egging on his party for an election that doesn't happen, uh, although that doesn't necessarily mean that he'll <laughs> he'll do it. After the break, we'll be looking at where Labour and the Conservatives are polling. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And and Ben, take us through the polls because I mean, more than anything, you know, psychologically, are you really going to go to the public when the polls look look like this for you? If if they're, if they're still like this in in April, exactly. So. But you could also take the view it's never going to improve, so go now, lose early, recover <laughs> early if you can. But do they ever think like that? I, don't know. I think I they don't just know. think something's going to turn power, up. Do they ever think that, that maybe? <laughs> yeah, they always hold out hope, don't they? That's why they last as long as can be. That's probably yeah. <laughs> it's it's a bit of a shame. And I was just we just had some polling from Sabanta out now. I mean, why would you go to the country when you are almost thirty points behind on the the NHS when you're 15 points behind on the cost of living, 10 points behind on the economy and 10 points behind on bloody immigration. 
Like how, how this is a completely different country to what it was in 2010 or 2015 or anything. I know these, these numbers look absolutely tragic. And, um, I uh, was here. I heard this a few weeks ago. Um, all the Labour prospective candidates, parliamentary candidates who'd been selected already for the winnables, the battlegrounds, uh, a lot of them in the north, they were all dragged into a meeting a few weeks back and they were told, look, we know it's coming in May. So pick up yourselves, get to work, rally your CLPs, get down to it. And part of me thought, oh gosh, they're doing, they're, they could be quite serious. But also, I, I, I'm also hearing hearing slash seeing local parties some of them just aren't making much of an effort and i think that might have been a ploy to get um their candidates to start doing some work in the battlegrounds that maybe the local candidates think are going to fall into their lap very easily but really it's not it's not quite like that and like i like i said earlier a lot of these seats will fall potentially on lower turnout a lot of it will be tory apathy a lot of it be um reform voters slash you know brexit voters slash boris voters staying at home few of them moving to labor uh you can't count on that you can't bank on that if a good tory mp is running a good local campaign less uh less tory mp more local mp you, you know it could work i know some sarah brickliffe in Hindburn, for instance and a load of other tory mps in the north the, the, you just measure the amount of blue on the leaflets it's zero percent you know they're going for green they're going they're going for a lot of different kind of leaflets it, it's, it's astounding stuff really. purple seems to be a favorite yeah to be honest green is a lovely color it's my favorite color actually um uh, but i i understand why you know why they've done it before i i know i think some labor mps back in 2010 or that were going for yellow leaflets when the lib dems were up against them it, it makes a lot of sense but in terms of the polling yes it's looking like you know Labour getting between 370 and 400 and something MPs. And that's before we get into tactical voting. That's before, and, and, and the scale of tactical voting, by the way, just to sort of illustrate it, in 1997, um, when tactical voting between Labour and Lib Dem voters was pretty good, pretty, pretty fine, um, you had about two dozen to three dozen seats change hands because of that, much to the benefit of both. And if you apply that same here, um, it will be three to four dozen because the scale of change is going to be greater. That makes sense. The shift in votes. So and particularly in Scotland as well, where unionist tactical voting is just going to sort of help Labour in, in a way you just don't expect, really. Um, it, it's You're going to see a big number of seats fall. And this is what I always take the view. You look at the polls right now and um, Labour are doing around about 17, 18, 19 points clear. Some of it's 20 plus, And then you have one or two polls showing them ahead by only 13 points. A lot of this is down to what do you make? What assumptions do you make about the Tory apathetics, as mentioned before, the Boris voters who are probably going to stay at home. If you make the assumption a lot of them come back to the fold by election time, the Labour lead falls between 15 and 13 points. If you make the assumption that they're actually probably going to you know, stop voting altogether, which I think is a slightly reasonable assumption, then it gets closer to 20-something points. Okay, That's that's the gap. That's the debate uh, pollsters are having right now. Um, uh, but whatever the case, I mean, even if Labour are 13 points ahead, I think the, the lead they need to win a majority isn't perhaps as great as some models, some calculators say it is. I think, you know, that Labour only needs to be ahead by eight or seven or even six points to get a majority and to get something pretty big. I think, you know, they've, they've got it already. I, 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 I know no forecaster should be complacent or arrogant or confident. And when every time I go on this podcast, I often give the impression I, I am and I probably perhaps shouldn't. But I do not see a situation in which Labour does not come ahead 
when the election comes. You know, I think Keir Starmer will probably be the next prime minister. Do I think they'll get uh, a landslide? I think it's probable at the moment. Is it guaranteed? No. I think you ca- you cannot overturn 70-something percent of the public saying the next election is a change election. You cannot overturn 80% saying, you know, borders, you know, the government's handling immigration badly. Unless, of course, you do something about Rwanda very quickly. But again, it's not an election. It's not as a motiv- a voter-motivating issue in the way it was in 2010 or 15. We're, we're a completely different country. But though I say that, I, I don't think it's, you know, permanent. I think we could swing back to being that country once the cost of living recovers, can't we? Yeah. Okay, and let's just linger a little bit more on the general election. Um, what do we think, Rachel, are going to be the outlines of how the how the parties are going to campaign? I mean, I think it's interesting because until recently, Rishi Sunak was seen as a sort of asset for his party, wasn't he? For a long time, he was polling ahead of the party brand. We had Tim Bale in on an episode we did earlier this year, the um, academic who's an expert in the Conservative Party from Queen Mary. And he'd written a book about the Conservatives and he'd he'd warned the Tories basically on this podcast when I was interviewing him to think carefully about, about running a, another presidential campaign like they tried to do with Theresa May. Because while she was very popular as Prime Minister when she came in... Um, the campaign sort of completely wrecked that. First of all, because she wasn't seen as a particularly good campaigner, but also the thing that people thing that people seemed to quite like about Theresa May was that she was sort of getting on with the job and quite behind the scenes rather than her face on buses and things. Rishi Sunak has a slightly different problem in that he doesn't seem to come across well when he's face-to-face with the public. He's made a number of quite embarrassing gaffes, seems a bit out of touch. But also you've written a lot about how he's coming across as quite stroppy in interviews. And even some Tory MPs even think that he might be too tetchy to even handle the scrutiny of of a general election. So the thing about Rishi Sunak that's interesting is he's never come under that much scrutiny in a general election campaign. So he was elected in... 2015. Um, in the elections in, in 2017, he wasn't prominent. In 2019, he was a junior, junior cabinet minister. He became chancellor uh, in early 2020. And that was the first time anyone had really heard of him. And the first thing they heard about him was, oh, he's going to give lots of people lots of free money during COVID with the furlough scheme and support for businesses. And a lot of the messaging from the Treasury during that time had his personal brand on it, it had his face on it, it had his signature. And that is kind of when his popularity started to rise. So he's never had to face an election campaign where he's had difficult questions to him directly. He's never been put under that kind of pressure. And there have been uh, quite a few examples where he has been asked questions either by the public or by journalists that he sees as unfriendly, unfair questions. And his demeanour has been very sulky, tetchy is the word used, and you can tell that he thinks the question is very unfair. Actually, if you watched his performance, forget what he was saying, if you just listened to the intonation of his voice or watched his face when he was talking about the Rwanda bill that he introduced, it was was very petulant and, and kind of very childish. And I have heard from Conservatives from both wings of the party, the, the One Nation liberal, moderate ones and the the right-wingers both say that they are genuinely worried that under the pressure of an election campaign, which is an incredible amount of pressure, he will 
have a meltdown or a tantrum or he'll snap at a journalist or he'll get caught on camera shouting at a member of the public. You know, he did that media round on local radio where he was answering questions from the public. I think it was possibly LBC. And somebody called in and said, my mortgage has gone up by hundreds of pounds a month and he just patronised him and went well on average mortgages are going up by X amount <laughs> yeah. that's not a way to resonate with the public so I think he is a liability in that way but more broadly going back to what you said about the dangers of running a presidential campaign um, I don't think that works in British politics historically very well I think the 2019 Boris Johnson election is an anomaly Boris Johnson had a particular way of communicating with the public that I think is very unusual in British politicians. We don't have a presidential system. And Robert Colville, who's been on this podcast before, Mm. he runs the right-wing Centre for Policy Studies think tank, uh, has written about the dangers of the Conservative Party thinking that if they replace Rishi Sunak as leader, that will save them in the polls. You're getting a lot of that at the moment. Well, we're down in the polls. He's very unpopular. We're very unpopular. Let's switch leaders again. I'm pointing out that the problem, the core problem, isn't actually that Rishi Sunak is unpopular. It's that the Conservative Party are unpopular. And you can't fix that by just getting a new face in. Yeah. And, and Ben, where does Rishi Sunak poll in comparison to his party? Is he is he still more popular than the Tories as a party? Yeah, yeah. So um, when he became prime minister, one year and one month and a bit ago, a long time, a lot, a lot, really long time ago, um, he was the best thing going. He was the best thing for the Tory party since sliced bread. Brand Sunak, brand Rishi was pretty good because people saw him as dishy rishy and he was untested. Reminds me of Mrs. May in a, in a way. Um, it's just sort of an untested brand where we project all our thoughts onto he looks like a Cameroon, but politically he's like a Thatcherite and a little bit more, isn't he? And um, I don't think perhaps that's been truly tested with voters just yet. In terms of popularity, you know, the Tory brand is re- really in the mud. It's, it's, you know, crashed and burned under Boris Johnson. It fell to the floor under Rishi Sunak and it's barely risen from the, any ashes, because there were no ashes to rise from uh, under under Rishi Sunak. And his brand started okay. It started like 30-something percent approval, um, went a little bit higher than that. And then then it's just gone down to 20-something percent, which is similar enough to where the Tory brand is now. So before, he was like a net advantage to the uh, Tory party. And you would have thought from that, um, maybe a presidential election might have worked. But as Rachel says, I don't think they work. And we can actually back it up as well. Um, You think back to 1979 when um, a lot of voters wanted change. A lot of voters were very unhappy with the way the country was going, strikes, economy, inflation, prices, et cetera, et cetera. But James Callaghan, who was a really affable guy and was seen as much in the eyes of voters, was a very popular figure. He was the best thing going for the Labour brand and Callaghan sought to capitalise on that slightly, even though he himself knew it wouldn't have worked. But he thought, I'm the best thing going. Let's try and shore this up. It didn't work. You know, Thatcher, who was seen as a little bit uh, less competent than Callaghan, you know, rode on the coattails of this need for change, which, um, you know, could have been applied here now if not for the fact Sir Keir Starmer is actually more liked than Rishi Sunak. And we often forget that. He's he's more liked than Sunak by... he. You know, if Labour has a lead on the economy by 10 points, a lead on party by 18 to 20 points, Starmer has a lead over Sunak of around about 10 points or so as well. You know, and we we, we often forget that. But yeah, Sunak has, has sort of crashed and burned. He's drift... Well, when I say crashed and burned, he's more drifted. He started really well. We got very excited by that. 
a lot more people started writing up the potential that oh he could bring us back and then he didn't reality hit and yeah i don't i i think it has a lot to do with the fact that voters aren't paying attention anymore a lot of minds are already made up there'll always be uncertainty if you look at polls and you always say you know one in five voters were unsure how they'll vote at the next election um i i think that's just generally speaking it's not you know swing voters it's not marginal voters it's not people who could actually move things around and what what i'm trying to get to there is i think most the minds of those who could change the result of the next election are already made up Okay, great. Thanks, Ben. So the ju- the jury's out on um, a presidential style race for the Tories. They could try and do a get Rwanda done. They could try and do a stop Labour's war on motorists and general sort of anti net zero stuff. On the Labour side, the shape of that campaign, it really looks like the Ming Vars contingent has won out. You know, you remember there was this tension which we've spoken about on the podcast many times before between those who say sort of slowly, slowly, gently don't do anything to to rock the boat or scare the horses and those who say, well, actually the country in the country there's an appetite for a bigger, more radical change. They've obviously taken the, the, the former path. I think before we broke up for Christmas, one of the last things Keir Starmer was talking about was his party's own immigration policy and he actually described as mundane. And the idea is that he's sort of proposing incremental change. Whether or not that's really what the public want to hear when the country's in the state it's in is, you know, is, is not obvious, but I think that's the calculation that Labour has made on their part. And of course, to add to the complicated picture that we've already been painting, if they do hold this election in 2024, it could be the first time ever that it coincided with both the US presidential election and also the European Parliament elections as well. Um, So that's a lot going on politically for the UK's major allies. And then, you know, the only time that the two, those two UK and US elections have coincided before was in 64. They do try and avoid it because it does tend to um, cause problems. And, you know, you've seen the polarisation in the US today. Some of that could potentially be imported into a UK election if they do run along at the same time. So we'll we'll talk about that more on a future episode. We'll bring Ben back on. You can talk through all of the polling that you have on the US as well. And before we wrap up for the year, I do want to know what's on your sort of 2024 bingo card. What are the big stories you'll be keeping an eye on? Or what are the things that you think are going to blow up next year that our listeners should be aware of? Rachel? Uh, so I'm cheating slightly because you asked for a, a big story that I think is going to blow up and you didn't say a big political story. But I think <laughs> mine is sort of political. I think Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter slash X is going to be really crucial for the internet, but also for a number of elections, certainly for the US presidential election. Um, And the fact that Musk seems to have turned Twitter, I'm not going to call it X, into a platform for right-wing politicians. He hosted a um, a live stream Twitter event with uh, some some right-wing figures, including Alex Jones, obviously the conspiracy theorist, who has just been allowed back on the platform. He's let a whole load of very controversial right-wing figures. I'm not even sure you'd call them right-wing figures, all right figures, Mm. I would say, back on the platform. And it's kind of relevant to UK politics too, because... Tommy Robinson was allowed back on. Tommy Robinson was was, was allowed back on. Um, And... Rishi Sunak interviewed Elon Musk uh, a month or so ago at this absolutely bizarre event. But the way Twitter has shaped how British politicians do 
politics. And you've seen the sort of back and forth of various high profile conservative politicians, Labour as well, um, but over the over the Rwanda plan, how they've used the platform to further their position, further their own goals. I, I, I think that if there was a leadership election in the Conservative Party, Twitter is an X is still going to be crucial for that. And the way Elon Musk's tenure at the head of that organisation shapes what we see, how news is is verified. Obviously, the blue ticks disappeared, which we're very sad about. But <laughs> how, how news is verified, uh, how we had a bait happens in, in that space and what's promoted and what isn't, I think is actually going to be quite critical just for the way that we talk about politics. Yeah, for sure. And Ben, what are you looking out for next year? Yeah. Um, I was going to make it a very political thing to watch out for next year, which was Nigel Farage and what, he's, what his relationship with the Conservative Party is going to be like at the end of next year. Because let's assume the general election happens next year, whether it's in May or October, and we assume the Conservatives lose badly and they decide to go for a new leader, because I don't think <laughs> the party membership are really clamouring for Sunak right now. I don't know about the parliamentary party, but, you know, there might be a slim majority, who knows, or maybe not. Um, but I think the relationship the party membership will have with the parliamentary party and all their views on Nigel Farage, I think, is going to be very interesting because um, I was doing, I did this for, for Morning Call. I do a chart of the day every every day for Morning Call and I, and I was looking at uh, the popularity of Nigel Farage. Now, three in ten of the public quite like him. Uh, some people say he was a drag on the Leave vote and he, he was, but he was also he also pushed people out to vote as well. So his net benefit is pretty much, I'd say, nil in that regard. Um, but what I notice is Tory voters or those who are currently sticking with the Tories are actually quite 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 appreciative of him they like him they, 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 you have a majority of those that voted Tory at the last election and those voting Tory now, they say they have quite a favourable view of Nigel Farage. Now, we didn't have that during the days of David Cameron. At the start, you had quite a plurality in favour, but it was rare. But at the 2015 general election, most Tory voters did not like Nigel Farage at all. It's a different party in terms of voters. And I wonder, perhaps in terms of members, I know Tory members in Cheshire and Chester who um, say, say to me, this is not the party I joined, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. It's, it's, it's very much, it's becoming a changed force. And I think we need to look at that, talk about that more and give it a bit of a t- attention. Thanks, Ben. The one I want to bring to the table is um, that councils are finalising their budgets in February, as they do. Um, and I think a lot more, we'll see a lot more going bankrupt. They can't actually go bankrupt, but they effectively can. And we've already seen five local authorities, big ones like Birmingham and Nottingham included, go bankrupt since 2021. Of different parties as well, which is really important. Party political. Um, And the New Statesman's done its own polling of councillors and it shows a quarter of them believe their council will go bankrupt soon. And I do think both parties, the government and Labour, are going to have to come up with solutions on this soon because you're not hearing anything constructive really from either of them on this problem. All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Um, We've, yeah, we've covered a great deal. And now we just have to look ahead to 2024 and see how nothing that we've predicted happens, as we've said. Um, And thank you so much to everyone for listening to today's episode and to all of our political coverage across the year. And we'll be back next year. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Ben Walker. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Happy New Year. Thank you. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.